Well, we love grace, don't we? Grace is a, is a valuable thing. So maybe it's that uh, gratitude we feel when we're extended a grace period for a payment that's due. That extra 30 days is, is really needed so we can scrounge up the necessary money that we need. Or maybe we are, we're thankful for that waiter or that flight attendant who we call extra gracious, grace-filled. So they're especially attentive to our needs. They go out of their way to make us feel cared for. We even speak of, of grace when we fight with someone, right? We, we talk about doing all we can to get to be back to being okay with them, to get back into their good graces, right? Our culture uses the term grace all the time. We like grace. It's, we like a delay when something is owed, when, when someone goes out of their way to be gracious. Those, those good feelings when we're back okay with someone and they're not mad at us anymore. But what about God? What about, what about God's grace? Is his grace kind of like that, just better? Is his grace like our, our credit card companies when they give us that grace period? And if not... What's so great, what's so wonderful about God's grace? We come this morning to our fifth study in Ephesians, and we come to a passage where Paul, uh, one of the first missionaries of the early church, teaches us this basic truth about the grace of God. And, and, And I pray that those among us who have heard these words hundreds of times, would be struck afresh this morning by how wonderful this grace is. And that those among us who may not have heard these words quite as many times would understand why this grace is life-changing. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can grab it and turn with me to the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, uh, don't worry. Like Brad said earlier, um, there are Bibles out on the Connect table. Feel free to grab one or two as you leave. If you don't have something, you can read easily at home. That's our gift to you. So like I said, we're in uh, the New Testament this morning. So there are two large different sections of the Bible. We call them Testaments. So there's the, the Old Testament where we find books that were written before Jesus' birth and life. And then there's the New Testament where we find writings written after Jesus died, after he rose again. And in the New Testament, we find many different letters, letters written to churches. And this morning we turn to a letter written by Paul to what seems to be a a group of churches surrounding the city of Ephesus. So Ephesus was a bustling port city in what is now modern-day Turkey. And, And Paul writes this letter, and as we read it, we see that he clearly kind of divides the the letter into two uh, sections, or at least we can see what he's getting at in two different sections. So in the first three chapters, we see roughly what it means to be a Christian, to be united to Christ by faith. And then in the final three chapters, we see Paul get more practical and start to explore the nuts and bolts of what it looks like to live as a Christian united to Christ by faith. And so this morning we come having already thought about about a chapter and a half of the six chapters that Paul writes. So what have we seen? Well, we've seen how God has planned to save his people, how he's adopted them, how he's redeemed them, and how he's given them an inheritance. And then we've seen Paul kind of back up and pray for the church, 
pray that with all these blessings that they can have in Christ, that they have in Christ, that they would not merely know about God, but that they would know him, truly know him. And then last week we explored the first few verses of chapter 2, where we saw Paul describe what it means to be spiritually dead in sin and separated from God, and then how God has had mercy and in Christ made us spiritually alive. And at the end of our passage last week, this is what we read. We read this great news. Paul writes, starting in verse 4 of chapter 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's kind of where we left off last week. Paul's just talked about how it is by grace that we're made spiritually alive. And he's proclaimed that that grace is not limited. Like we said a few weeks ago, it's it's not on a budget. Now he describes God's grace in terms of immeasurable riches. So we, we live in the richest county in the United States of America. Loudoun County is at the top of the list and has been for a long time when it comes to the wealthiest regions. And so I think we're well aware of money here and the nice things that money can buy and the status that money can achieve. But, but think about it. None of us can claim or know someone who can claim immeasurable riches, riches that cannot be counted. I mean, we count crazy things, right? We can measure how deep the the ocean is at its greatest depth. We can estimate the light years from Earth to the far reaches of space. We can count the, the molecules or whatever you call them that make up our bodies. There's something there. But when it comes to God's grace, Paul says we can't put a number on this. He says the riches of God's grace are immeasurable. They're innumerable. So now in our passage for this morning, he digs into this measurable, immeasurably rich grace and how this grace has been directed towards us, towards the church. So please follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, church, as we consider these three verses this morning, let's break our time into two parts. And let's consider two truths about what it means to be a Christian, to be united to Christ. So first, let's see that Christians are saved by grace. Christians are saved by grace. And then second, let's see that Christians are created for good works. Christians are created for good works. So first, Christians are saved by grace, and we see that twice in these few verses. So back in in verse 5, Paul kind of interrupted his flow of thought there. 
Uh, he interrupts what he's saying, and he says quickly, by grace you have been saved, kind of just flows from him. And then he just gets back on track, and he continues on. And, and so here in verse 8, it's like he's picking back up on that concept and elaborating further. And he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. God has acted towards his people to save them, and he's done this by his grace, Paul says. And like we alluded to at the, at the beginning in our introduction, uh, this grace is different than the grace we usually talk about in our lives. This grace, this saving grace of God towards his people, is not merely kind of a delay on his judgment. It's not a period of waiting for us to get our act together again until we can get him what we owe him. God's saving grace towards us is even, is even different than his mercy. So God's mercy means that he doesn't give us what we deserve, which is his judgment for our sin. But God's grace comes along and adds like just another wonderful level to that and shows that not only have we been spared but we, what we deserve, but we've been showered with riches that we don't deserve. We've been spared what we deserve and now we get what we don't deserve. God's favor and blessing and love and care. God's grace is greater than we can imagine. So I think we need to back up a little bit and look at what we considered last week a little bit. We need some context here to remember what Paul is saying. So he said, he, he said in verses 1 through 7, and we saw how in our spiritual death, in our rebellion against God, we are dead in our sin, spiritually dead. No hope of turning to God. No hope of salvation. We were justly under God's punishment. But then remember, we got to the crux of that passage and those amazing two words in verse 4. But God. And we saw how God intervened in our helpless state and rescued us and made us alive in Christ. In that passage, we saw that God's grace really makes all the difference between life and death. God's grace has pursued us. It's regenerated us. That means it, it's made us alive even as we were dead. It, it's melted our hearts of stone that hated God. It's given us love for God when all we had was antipathy for him. God's grace has turned rebels into sons. It's turned enemies into friends. It's turned death into life. But there's something that makes this grace even richer. Because the fact that God gives grace to begin with and he gives it to sinners is actually a big problem for God. For God to extend undeserved love to his enemies, to those who have attempted to steal his glory and make themselves gods in his place, for him to set his love on them, that kind of puts God in a bit of a predicament. Because it's simply not reflective of his justice for him to just do that. For God, the judge, the, the perfect judge, to look on rebellion and sin and extend grace and kind of pass it over, for God to do that and just leave it there, it makes God unjust. And an unjust God is, is no God at all. It would make him a terrible, partisan, biased judge. Paul explains this problem in another letter he wrote called Romans. He thinks of, of those to whom God has shown mercy, and he says that God has passed over their sins because of his mercy. 
And Paul understands that since God has done that, God's justice is at stake. He needs to be vindicated, to be shown that what he has done is just and right. He hasn't simply swept wrongdoing under the carpet. So Paul kind of sets up a, something that needs a solution. What, what happened? How can God be able to show grace and yet remain perfectly just? Well, Paul explains in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, and this is what he says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Those are deep words. There's a lot in there. But, but realize just the basic point Paul is making. For God to show grace to sinners and remain just, someone else has to pay the price for sin. Someone else has to shed blood as a propitiation for sin. We never use that word in any, anywhere but church, but it's a wonderful word. It's a, it's a big word that refers to a sacrifice that can turn God's just anger into God's just favor. Friends, God's grace is more than just his favorable disposition towards us. God's grace comes to us at an extreme cost to himself. It is not our own doing, says Paul. But that implies that it's someone's doing. It is the doing of God in sending his son to bear the just punishment we deserved for our sins. And in this light, God's grace becomes so much richer than anything we can ever imagine. God's grace is made available to us through the life of his very own precious son. Jesus bore the judgment of God in our place. He bore our sins so that God's justice would be shown to be right. God's actions in forgiving would be shown to be just so that God could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's a simple way to remember what grace is. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. If you take that sentence, each first letter spells out grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Christian, nothing in you merits this grace. It is not your own doing. It's the gift of God made possible through the blood of Christ. Remember what Brad read for us earlier from the book of Titus, which is another letter written by Paul. And there we read, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He saved us because of works done by Christ in righteousness. God has shown abundant grace towards sinners. And all we are to do, says Paul there in verse 
Eight is to respond in faith. To trust that what Jesus has done has accomplished our salvation. And it's our only hope. So throughout the years, people have come to this passage and gone, well, wait a minute. I mean, faith is something that we exercise, right? So what makes that not a work? Is Paul contradicting himself here? Is, is faith kind of a small way we can participate in earning God's favor for us? And we must say to that, far from it. No. Faith is a gift of God just like grace is. So we see that there in verse 8. Paul says that it is the gift of God. And it, what does it refer to? It refers to the entire uh, previous phrase, salvation by grace through faith. So in its entirety, this salvation has come to us by grace through our faith, all a gift of God to us. He graciously gives us salvation and graciously grants us the faith to respond to it. Christian, doesn't, doesn't that give you the utmost comfort? That God accomplishes your salvation from beginning to end? I mean, what comfort would we have if we had any role to play in this? In this change from spiritual death to spiritual life? What, what hope would we have that we had done it sufficiently? That we carried out our end of the deal? No, God is the actor here. Fully and completely. This is not our doing. It is the gift of God. And friend, if you're here and you don't consider yourself a follower of, of Jesus, we're, we're glad you're here. So we're grateful that you join us. But consider this news. This is the news that we celebrate every time we gather. This is the only reason we gather as Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, to remember this is true. We were dead in our sins. We had no expectation of anything from God except his just judgment on our sin. But God has intervened. And he has sent Jesus to bear the punishment in our place, to give us his perfect righteousness so that we can know God as our father, not our judge. This is grace. And friend, this is for you. God calls you this morning to turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus. Consider this grace-filled invitation. Do not pass it by. If you have questions at all, I, I get that. And I invite you to talk to me afterwards if you'd like. Talk to somebody out at the Connect table or some people you've seen up here. We would love to share with you more about what it means to find our faith and our trust in Christ alone. And church, let's look more closely there at verse 9. So Paul has shown us the grace of God. He says, it's the gift of God, not our own doing. And then what does he say? He says, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It, it almost seems like, like Paul understands we won't get this really well. Like, this won't be an easy thing for us to grasp. Because not only does he state it clearly, salvation by grace, salvation as a gift, but he goes to the effort of, the effort of explaining twice what it is not. It is not our own doing. It is, a, it is not a result of works. Why is this idea of being made right with God only by his grace so hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around? Well, Christian, I, I think we never fully outgrow this side of heaven. The sinful desire to somehow have something to do with a good thing that's happened to us. 
and here specifically, our salvation. I mean, the sin of, of pride and self-promotion uh, was the sin that our first father Adam and our first mother Eve were tempted by and gave into, wanting to be like God. And to this day, all of us in our pride, this is what we're about. We're about our own doing. So our career success, our own doing, hard work. Our children's good behavior, our own doing, parenting skills. Our academic achievement, our own doing, lots of, of study. Our physical health, our own doing, hours in the gym. Our moral lifestyle, our own doing, keep it clean, folks. Our correct doctrine, our own doing, we know the Bible. Our church's fruitfulness, our own doing. We've put a lot of work into this. Our spiritual maturity, our own doing. Devotions every day. Our right standing with God, our own doing. Stop. It's so hard for us to stop. It hurts our, our sensibilities to understand the most important thing about us is not our own doing. Our pride is offended at that. Not a result of works. Gift of God. Not of us. No boasting. Now I understand for many of us, this is not a newsflash. We understand this. We know that our salvation is not our own doing. We've heard this before, right? Check, got it. But I wonder, even as we might acknowledge a theological truth like this, if we might still function in our lives like our justification, that means being made right with God, is still somehow dependent on us. We know the truth. We're quick to reject any notion that our works have anything to do with it. But the real test comes in the way that we live. I mean, how might we even unconsciously function as if our justification is dependent on our good works? Let's think about that a little bit. What happens when you fall into sin, Christian? What happened this past week when you got angry at the kids again? When you fell, fell into enslaving lust again? When you got guilt, when you just had this guilt for gossiping about a friend again? Friends, sorrow over sin in those situations is good. But not discouragement. Were you slow to turn to God? Slow to seek his help? Did you feel like you needed to kind of work up Christian-y feelings to somehow atone for what you did before you prayed? I know many times I do that. Brothers and sisters, I think that shows in a way that we don't truly believe that our ability to come before God and beg for his help is guaranteed not on our performance, but because of Christ alone. So this week, as you fight sin and sometimes lose the battle, run full speed to God. Don't delay. Don't wait to pull yourself back together again before you cry out to him. On your bed, in your car, with your kids, wherever you've given in to sin, cry out to your Father in heaven. He is disposed to hear you because of what Christ has done. What about another area of our lives, our, our relationships with others? Christian, do you find yourself 
constantly seeking to justify yourself, to kind of earn favor from those whose opinion you crave? Is the rest that you desire in your soul kind of dependent on the favor that you get from people? So your spouse, your parents, your friends. I wonder, could could that be another way you've forgotten that your greatest need for acceptance, for justification, has already been met? Your greatest need of acceptance has been taken care of. You've been given the gift of grace, of righteousness, of good standing with God himself. I wonder if in our fear of man's approval, we're, we're still functioning as if God's justification of us in Christ isn't quite enough. One final area to, to kind of think about and diagnose. And that is, how, how do you perceive of others in this church? So as you view people, what do you see is the most important thing about them? Is it the way they dress? The way they raise their kids? Is it the things they say or don't say? Is it who they're voting or not voting for in November? Church, if the most important thing we see in each other is anything other than Christ, I think we're in danger of functioning as if we still need to earn part of our salvation. Let's take warning. Where might we subtly add to the gospel and expect Christians to act a certain way or look a certain way in order to be acceptable to God? Where might we be asking others to follow particular principles of our conscience in order to be right with God and right with us? It might be helpful to find a a brother or sister afterwards who you trust or give them a call later and, and ask them, so that we can grow together in, in understanding this grace in an even more deep way. And uh, young people and children, I, I think this is especially important for you. So as you grow up with Christian parents in a Christian environment, with Christian friends in a Christian family, you must understand that there's nothing ultimately that, that has anything to do with right standing with God. There's nothing you can ultimately do or behave a certain way in order to make God favorable towards you. So even if you obey your parents perfectly, if you know the Bible really well and you read it occasionally, you don't do some of the things those other kids do, as good as some of those things may be, none of those things will ultimately make you right with God. Only faith in Christ and what he has done will make you right with God. And so rest in that. Your only hope is in Christ. And God has graciously offered him to you. So turn to him, children, in faith and trust. Well, Paul wraps up verse 9 by saying that because of God's grace, because of all these things we've just been considering, no one may boast. So as we just sang about in how deep the Father's love for us, the only boast that we can ever have is in Jesus, in what he has done. We cannot boast in what we have added to our salvation. It's all the Lord's doing. So that's our first point. Christians are saved by grace. And let's move on and consider our second and final point for this morning, and that is that Christians are created for good works. Christians are created for good works. So Paul has laid out in chapter 2 this kind of stunning news 
Salvation is available, and it's not because of you. It's because of God's grace. It's a gift. And now look where he goes. Verse 10, he begins to focus on our works. He begins to focus on our new life and what it looks like, what it means. He says there in verse 10 that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. So this idea of creation kind of follows right along with what he's already been talking about, I think. So remember there in verse 4, he's just said that Christians are what? They're made alive together with Christ. And then he'll go on in the next passage that we'll consider next week to talk about how Jew and Gentile have made one new man in place of the two. Verse 15. Later in Ephesians, in chapter 4, Paul will talk about putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God. We talked about the idea of regeneration last week, how we are dead, now we're alive. And here Paul makes it clear again. We've been created again, recreated spiritually in Christ, made alive. We have brand new spiritual life in him. So last week we, we saw that we cannot turn to God in our spiritual death. We can do no good works in our sin. That would be like trying to put mascara on a corpse. Remember we said that? There's nothing good we can do in our spiritual death. But the thing that's so amazing about God's grace is that he's remade us. He's recreated us. And now says Paul, we can... We can do good works, and we can talk about doing good works. We can talk about what it means to live in a way that pleases God, because God's grace has changed us. It's transformed us. Now we're able to say no to sin. We're no longer enslaved by our passions that we talked about last week. Now everything is different. We're God's workmanship, his masterpiece. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. So this truth, this truth that we've been recreated spiritually, regenerated by the Spirit of God, reminds us of, uh, reminds us of a concept that we've talked about every single week so far. It's actually the title of this whole sermon series. And as, as Christians, we are now in Christ. We're united to him. His death to sin is our death to sin. His life is our life. His victory is our victory. His right standing before God is our right standing before God. And so now we see in just an all-encompassing way that we're just created new in Christ. And that makes all the difference as we talk about how to live, what to do, how to please God. We're not obeying because we're so great. We're obeying because Jesus is so great and now he lives his life through us. His power enables our faith to now bear fruit, to grow, to mature, to act. One scholar puts it this way, we are not saved by faith plus works, but by faith that does work. We have a living faith, a functioning faith. Church, this is yet another way to stand in awe of God's grace, I think. Because not only has he made us right with him, but he has a plan for our lives. He's created us in Christ Jesus for good works. And he says that this has been God's purpose all along. He's not just purpose to take away our sins and leave us in some neutral moral limbo. 
He's not just purposed to shower us with grace and make us his children. No, he's gone so far as to give us good works now to do for his glory. And he's really fulfilling in us what he created mankind for in the first place. There's so many echoes in this new creation of the original creation. You think he he placed Adam and Eve in the garden and what did he do? He gave them work to do for their good, for their joy, for his glory. This was meaningful work. But then they sinned. And their descendants, us, are born into rebellion against God until we're recreated. Able now to do good works again for our good, for our joy, for his glory. He's restoring his image in us, transforming us from those who, verse 2, walked after the world, walked after the devil, to now those, verse 10, who walk in good works. And we see, we see these good works commanded all throughout the New Testament, right? Colossians 1, Paul encourages the church to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Galatians 5, we see Paul celebrating the fruit of this new spiritual life by the work of the Holy Spirit and how as Christians we can now do love and, and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And in the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his disciples to be holy, like God is holy, to let their light shine before others so that others would see their good works and give glory to their Father in heaven. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus proclaimed, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. These things all sound burdensome to us if we forget that this is all post-recreation. We've been made new, we've been made alive, and now we follow after Christ and on and on throughout the New Testament. As the church begins and Christian community is established, we see command after command teaching us how to live as new creations in Christ, loving one another, forgiving one another, encouraging one another. Paul will go on in the letter of Ephesians, particularly the last three chapters, to talk about what this new life looks like. And I look forward to considering those things carefully with you. But for now, let's, let's let this sink in. By God's grace, we're saved and become new creatures. We are new people with new desires, new conviction of sin, new hearts filled with affection for Christ. And so our lives should look continually more and more like our Savior's. That will be evidence to us that we've been made new. Christian, your faith is an active faith. It will grow. You will never be more acceptable to God than you are right now. You are united to Christ, and so you will never be more right with God than you are right at this very second. But by God's grace, as you live day by day, week by week, year by year, you will begin to look practically more and more like Jesus. Your character will begin to mirror God's character. You will become holy like he is holy. And this is what we should look for in our lives, Christians. As one wise older preacher once said, if we don't see those works... We should doubt our justification. If you don't see any fruit in your life, any fruit of your faith over the months and over the years, no greater hunger for God, no increasing love for Christ, no visibly stronger walk with God, well, then there's simply 
a lack of evidence to assume that you've been made right with him and recreated in the first place. As Christians, we know that we've not only been saved from something, but to something. We have new life. We're joined to Christ. That's why at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, we have kind of two documents that shape the way we live together as a church. We have our statement of faith that that state this truth about the gospel by grace through faith alone. Then we also have a membership covenant that details how we live out our faith in response to that truth. How we hold each other accountable as we persevere in this grace. Here's what our covenant says at one point, church. We promise that we will seek, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, to live carefully in the world denying ungodliness and worldly desires, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again, new life, we now have a special obligation to lead a new and holy life. And so church, this is our promise to one another. We've got a job to do, to live this way, to help one another live this way. Like Hebrews says, to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're to look for good works in each other. Not, not as a way of earning right standing before God, but as a way of showing that we have that right standing before God. We've been made new. This is, this is the way we live. We must not stop after verse 9 and be content with a static faith. That is no faith at all. Our faith will be one that moves us to action, to the putting off of sin and the putting on of holiness. So as we conclude this morning, how should we go about living this way? Let me propose three brief things we should seek to cultivate as we walk in good works. First, we should walk humbly. Paul says we are God's workmanship. His grace towards us means there is no sense in boasting. And think about it, folks. The the God of the universe, this all-powerful, all-sovereign, all-controlling God has chosen to perform his perfect purposes through us. How humbling is that? Second, we should walk zealously. So, As we read earlier in Titus, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christian, the grace that we've been shown in the cross of Christ compels us to lay down our lives for this Jesus who laid down his life for us, to eagerly give everything we have for his glory. That's what we'll think about in our last hymn. The very life we live now, after all, is united to him. So, church, everything you do, from changing diapers, to mowing the lawn, to winning a court case, to watching the kids in nursery, it's not meaningless anymore. We're united to our Savior, and we're able to be zealous for good works, not afraid to work hard for the glory of this King. Grace isn't like a sedative that slows us down and makes us lazy. It's like an energy drink that keeps on giving, invigorates us, that 
clarifies our priorities, motivates us in our service for Christ. And third and finally, we should walk expectantly. Expectantly. If what we've said is true, then all our good works have an end in mind. They're all going somewhere. They're all pointed to the glory of the king who's returning. So when he comes, let's be busy at work for his glory. Bearing fruit, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, because he's coming back to set up his new creation, his new kingdom on earth. So, Loudon Valley Baptist Church, let's remember that our salvation is all of grace, that we've been made new. And because of that, let's be quick to encourage one another with these truths, to work hard together, humbly, zealously, and expectantly in this new life we have in Christ. Let's pray together. Our God, we rejoice today in your grace, the grace that has interrupted our hell-bound race and made us alive. Thank you that we're no longer dead in our sins, but we're alive in our Jesus. Lord, help us to understand in deeper ways what it means to live as the new creations that we are. Be obedient and fruitful in Christ. Protect us, we pray, as we do that, from looking to ourselves to find favor with you. Instead, help us to look to the cross, to survey the cross, and find the joy and the strength and the commitment to follow after you with all our hearts. Keep us, we pray. Help us to be faithful until you return. In Jesus' name.